0: Hope y'all are doing well. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can open up to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. It's in the Old Testament. It's kind of right in the middle of the Bible. Um, We'll be in Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51, 50 and 51. We've been reading through the Bible together as a church this year. And so as we've been reading the Bible together um, each month, there's four different selections um, that we're reading. And this particular... At this particular time, as we read all four of those, we pick one and we preach through that book throughout the month. So right now we're reading John, First Peter, Jeremiah, and the Song of Songs. And so for this particular month, we've picked Jeremiah and we're, we're preaching through it. And each month we've kind of done a different book from some of the Psalms to Romans to different things. Well, today, as I said, we're in Jeremiah. And what we are is in week three. So the first couple of weeks we looked at Jeremiah 20. In Jeremiah 29, today we're looking at 50 and 51, and then next week we will actually be in Lamentations, written by Jeremiah as well, which is a, is a book that kind of goes with the book of Jeremiah. So, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up uh, to Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. I'm going to pray, and I'll, I'll kind of give everybody an idea of where we're doing and where we are, and then we'll, we'll jump into 50 and 51. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, your word that you've given to us. We know that your word is... Remarkably powerful. And so as we look at your word today, I pray that you would open up all of our hearts and minds to receive your word. We know that your word's different than any book there is. This book has power because it speaks of Christ. This book has power because it talks about Jesus and his gospel and the good news that he came to save us. And so the message of Christ in and of itself is an amazing, powerful word. And so I pray that as we look at this text and as we see the gospel... God, that we would be moved. Help us realize that the gospel is not just for unbelievers to become believers, but it's also the same message for believers to grow in their faith. It's not get saved, now work hard. It's get saved and continually put your trust in Christ's atoning work and grow in Christ because of what he's done. And I pray that we would see our absolute need for the gospel, even if we've been saved 30 years that our sanctification, our being set apart, our growing in holiness is dependent on the gospel. And I pray that as we look at your word today and we look at this amazing story of exiles and how you have brought them back to you, God, that we would see ourselves in that same light and realize that we've been brought back to you by the same grace that they have. And it would just change the way we live for you because of the gospel. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, looking through the book of Jeremiah, if you're not very familiar with it, um, last week I did a little bit of a uh, Old Testament history catch-up for people that, um, that didn't understand or didn't necessarily know uh, the Old Testament. I'll do it really quickly. Uh, I don't want to just do that every week because <laughs> I don't want to bore you, but really quickly. Um, in, in the book of Genesis, after the flood, there's a man named Abraham, and God came to Abraham. And he said, "I want you to be the father of my people." And so he was. And then Abraham had eventually had a son. Had a son. As you got down there, were, became um, his grandson. whose name was Jacob. Had twelve sons. Jacob had his name changed to Israel um, whenever he wrestled with God. And so Israel had twelve sons, and hence we have. If you have read any part of the Bible, you know of the twelve tribes of Israel. That's just the twelve sons of Jacob. Um, and so as they go, uh, they eventually. Get to the promised land as they leave Egypt and as they get to the promised land, God's their God and they're following him and they say, we want a king and David becomes their king. Uh, Well, Saul, then David becomes their king, then Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom that was 12 tribes split into two different kingdoms and there were 10 tribes to the north and two tribes to the south, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Well, as that happened, this was kind of the beginning of the end, if you will, of, of bad behavior and falling away from the covenant, which was made to them. And Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6 was, if you'll just let me be your God, I'll lead you. You'll be my covenant people. I will be your God. You'll be my people. I'll, I'll love you and I'll take care of you. As they went into the split kingdoms and foreign people would come in and convince them to walk away. They would worship false gods. Um, these, these two kingdoms, they would have good kings and sometimes they would have bad kings. And the good kings would lead the people in a positive manner, but the bad kings would lead the people away. And as they were being led away, God would send prophets. And as he would send prophets, he would say, the prophets would say the message of God, which is turn and repent. Don't walk away from God. Remember the covenant of Exodus 19. Become his people again. Change. Repent of your sin and come back to the Lord. Well, they had these periods of being good and bad. Um, Eventually, the northern kingdom uh, did not follow God. And God allowed people to come in and take over the northern kingdom. And it was no longer Israel's land anymore. Well, the same thing eventually happened to the south, which is what we're looking at here. Um, These particular people in the south, Jeremiah was a prophet that would come to them and say, Repent, change, etc. And they wouldn't. They would never listen. And eventually, um, the Babylonians came into the south and took them. And as the Babylonians, who were just a massive people um, and a massive army, they they came in and took the land of, of Jerusalem and they sent those those two tribes, those Judah, those, the Israelites that were there, they sent them off to, to Babylon, to their actual land. And they, they, the Babylonians lived in Jerusalem, and they sent the, the Israelites, or the, those two tribes, off to live in Babylon, which is just a wicked, wicked, horrific, sinful city. Um, and this is kind of where we are in, in Jeremiah. As he's trying to tell them to repent, they sent them off in exile. Well, two weeks ago, as we were looking at Jeremiah chapter 20... Um, we saw where Jeremiah came to the people and asked them to turn, asked them to, you know, come back to the Lord, etc. And he was telling them that their way that they're living isn't correct. And as he was saying it, um, the priest at the time, whose name was Pashur, Pashur said, the words that you're saying, Jer- Jeremiah, it makes it sound like, Um, These are treasonous words. We don't like what you're doing. They took Jeremiah and they put him in what's known as the stocks. The stocks were a a twisting, torturous device where he was tortured all night because of this message that he gave to the Israelites that they didn't like. And so after they let him out, um, we saw the second half of that particular uh, text in Jeremiah 20, which is verses 7 through 18, where while he was in the Twister Stocks. He had this kind of dark night of the soul. Where he just couldn't believe that the Lord was allowing these things to happen. And we, we saw that the Lord is okay with us having one of these. This doesn't, this doesn't categorize or define who we are as a person throughout our entire life. But there are going to be moments of suffering. As we follow the Lord. Because certainly Jeremiah was following the Lord. And in those moments of suffering. We saw some things about how that ha- happens. Um, and then in Jeremiah chapter 29. Which was last week. As the, they were exiled. ...to Babylon as the people of God were taken out of their own city and Babylonians came and took it... ...and they were sent off uh, to, to be exiled for the entire time... ...clearly would say we would say, well that's their punishment. It's their discipline for their sin. And the title of last week is Exiled to Babylon for Punishment. And we did one of those little cross-throughs, Mission. And we're thinking, what? If you're exiled it's punishment and you're kind of sent over to a, a place of death row. You don't want to be there. Um, why would that be mission? Well, that was Jeremiah chapter 29 where there had been someone in the previous chapter in 28 that said, Oh, this exile is only going to last two years. Don't have to worry about it. And then in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, Jeremiah says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed uh, in Babylon, after you've been exiled to Babylon for 70 years, that's when I'll visit you. That's when I'll fulfill my promise. And that's when I'll bring you back. And so, Hananiah, the two-year guy, is lying. It's actually 70. And the reason why he chose 70 is because 70 is generally a lifetime. And so these people, because of their sin, were exiled for their lifetime. They wouldn't get to come back to the promised land. But eventually, their children would. And so we see that while you're there, while you're exiled, God didn't say, so just, you know, live on death row. You know, get your one hour of sunlight a day. And hopefully you can eat some bread and live. No, he tells them, while you're there... I want you to have a massive influence on the people in Babylon. And that's where you can see in verses 5 and following where he tells them to build houses, live in them, plant gardens, take, uh, eat their produce, have sons and daughters, get married there, seek the welfare of the city. Imagine being someone that's from Israel who hates the Babylonians and God tells you while you're in Babylon, seek the welfare of Babylon, your enemy whom you hate. So you can see, he's actually sent, they're sent there to bring shalom, peace to the people there. And he's also told, they're also told to pray for them and seek their welfare. So while they're there for a a long time, 70 years, God tells them, put down roots, be my people, and really live out this mission. Seek the welfare of the city, seek the shalom of the city, pray for your enemies, etc. And we saw that there are absolute comparisons today that we can make today in our own lives, that we can do those exact same things. We're not in Babylon, but we are certainly in a place that needs the Lord. And so we should put down roots, not just be like them. We just want to go home and we don't want to do anything here. We do want to go home to heaven. But while we're here, 70 years in our lifetime, we put down roots. We seek the welfare of the city. We bring shalom to the people. We bring peace to the city. Well, um, if you keep going through the book of Jeremiah, um, we're not going to, we're going to look at it in just a little bit. We're not right now, but in chapter thirty. Through really 34. There's a place which we're going to look at specifically in chapter 31. Where not the old covenant, Exodus 19. But the new covenant, Jesus Christ, is discussed in the book of Jeremiah. It's the new covenant from the New Testament put into the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. Where Jeremiah actually talks about 500 years before Jesus is born. About Jesus being born and the salvation that he's going to give to us all. Uh, That's in, in Exodus 30-34, uh, through 34. we're going to zoom in on the 31 section. But what we're going to go to right now is Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. And here's where we are. We're at the end of those 70 years. And finally, God is going to bring those people out of exile back to Jerusalem. And in order for him to do this, the Babylonians that took them captive and sent them off to live in Babylon in their their horrific city, God's going to come now. And just destroy all the Babylonians. So that they can come back to their city. So if you have a Bible and you're in Jeremiah chapter 50. You can see judgment on Babylon is the title of chapter 50. And you can see chapter 51's title is the utter destruction of Babylon. Now those aren't aren't like from the original writers. That's just your ESV or whatever Bible you use kind of title. Those titles weren't put there by Jeremiah. But they still give you a good understanding of what's going on. Now normally... We usually look at about 12 verses and I go verse by verse um, as we preach through the Bible. Because we're doing two chapters, I'm not going to start at chapter 50 verse 1 and go verse by verse through two chapters that have, you know, into the 30 verses. And and really 51 you can see is all the way into the 64. I'm not going to go verse by verse or else we would literally be here till next Sunday. Um, So I'm not going to do that. So it's a little bit different approach than the normal but here we're going to kind of take a broad look at the chapters and let the themes kind of pop out i'll i'll point you to the themes so that you can see them but here's the interesting part as verse chapter 50 and 51 are primarily about the destruction of babylon that's what they're written for they're they're telling us uh, the prophesying of babylon's destruction but also kind of the chronicling or how it happens of 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 their uh Destruction mixed in, especially in chapter 50, we're going to see the salvation that Israel receives because of Babylon's destruction. And the salvation that Israel receives, the language that's used about Israel's salvation, is the same kind of language that we would use to describe our salvation. And so I'm going to help us see how the promises of Israel's salvation and correspondingly relate to us in the church. Now, the exile of Israel is very similar to the Exodus narrative. The Exodus narrative is they're over, and you you should know this if you grew up, you know, as a VBS goer. Where you could say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And then, you you know, you have frogs, and you have all the different plagues. And finally, Pharaoh, after seven times, lets them go. But he didn't want to let them go for a while, and they finally leave. It's the same kind of thing. While they were exiled and brought into the Promised Land, here, they're exiled. And they're brought into the promised land. This is the second one, if you will. The second exile where they're brought into the promised land. Um, These people deeply desired to be brought back. And they had to wait for 70 years. And the reason why, you have to remember this. Don't don't let this kind of pass ho-hum over the fact that uh, God lets them come back. The reason why they get to come back is because God is amazingly gracious to let them come back. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. It wasn't their time. It wasn't their moment to shine. Instead, God could have left them in exile for their entire life because they deserved it. But God comes in and utterly destroys Babylon because of his grace. So that the people who are exiled to this pagan, secular, sinful city can come back into their city. Into the promised land and experience being the people of God again. As we discussed, Jeremiah 29, 10 showed us that it was 70 years that they were exiled of their sin. And so as we talk about the fact that it was because of their sin, if we're going to use this particular chapter as relating to us, um, not use it, but see how it relates to us, similarly, in the same way that they were exiled because of their sin, we too, outside of Jesus, have been exiled because of our sin, exiled to face the wrath of God, just like them. However, because of God, and again... Because of His amazing, magnificent grace that He showed them, they were allowed to come back. In the same way, because of His amazing, magnificent grace, it wasn't our time, it wasn't our opportunity, it wasn't our turn to shine, we didn't deserve it, but instead, because, because God is overflows in grace, He has given us mercy, specifically mercy provided to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, forgiving our sin, removing the wrath of God that was on us. He also, like them, brings us into The promised land, which for us is eventually we will be with God, with Jesus in heaven. That's our promised land. So the story, and I would say every story in the Old Testament is just a a telling of the greatest story. Every story you read in the Old Testament is a different way to help you understand the greatest story, which is the New Testament story of Christ coming and saving us. In Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51, God's fulfilling this promise to bring them back. And the way that he's going to fulfill the promise, interestingly enough, is the annihilation of the Babylonians. The annihilation of the Babylonians. And as the Babylonians are annihilated, the blessings that Israel received from them in Babylonians destruction, Babylon's destruction is salvation. That's the blessing that they eventually receive. So... Before we see those, those images or blessings that Israel received, I want you to at least first see kind of the themes of Babylon's sin that they did against Israel that are in these chapters. So the first one is their, uh, their violence. If you look at chapter 50, verse 11 and 12, it's going to describe the violence of Babylon... ...against Jerusalem and how this violence is going to be avenged now by God. It says in verse 11, though you rejoice. So you have the Babylonians rejoicing like, woohoo, we overthrew Israel, we're awesome. Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunders of my heritage. Though you frolic like a heifer. No idea what that looks like, by the way. Never seen that happen. But here you have a a heifer frolicking in a pasture. Um, Anyway, and nay like stallions... And then this, here's what's going to happen. Babylonians, because you've been this way. Your mother shall be utterly shamed. And she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations. A wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. So here we have the, the prophecy given to the Babylonians of their violence that they did against the Israel being avenged. That's, that's one. These aren't going to be on the screen. But here's another one. We also see not just their violence being avenged, but we see their arrogance being brought low, or their arrogance or their pride being destroyed. If you look at chapter 50, look at verse 31. Behold, I'm against you. This is Babylon. Behold, I'm against you, Babylon, O proud one, declares the Lord of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and will fall, with none to raise him up. And I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. So another thing we see is not just the violence being avenged that they did against Israel, but their arrogance that they had. They were not humble people, they were proud proud people, and God brings them low. Another thing that we see regarding the Babylonians is that their gods, little g, gods are absolutely powerless to save them. Um, In verse 2, it says, in chapter 50, verse 2, It says, declare among the nations and proclaim, let her uh, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bell is put to shame. One commentator, I said, I read, said that the Lord is going to come and ring bells, bell, something like that. Anyway, it said, Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. In other words, your little G gods, Babylonians, are absolutely powerless to help you or save you when it comes to the Lord God. They're, they're nothing. It's like whenever we see an ant, if we want to kill the ant, we can just, you're dead. But infinitely more. No one comes close. No little G God comes close to coming up against Yahweh. And so as we see the these particular people, Babylon's violence is going to be avenged. Their arrogance will be made low. Their, their gods are powerless to save them. But another thing is that their land is going to be destroyed. Their land is going to be devastated. You can look at chapter 50 verse 3. For out of the north. And it says over and over out of the north. Verse 9 verse 41. Um, over and over it's going to say that out of the north. Um, a nation is going to come up against you. Which shall make her land a desolation. And none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. So another thing that the Lord's going to do against Babylon. Is absolutely devastate their land. It's going to be historically we know. It's king cyrus of persia that come and does this he does it more diplomatically but he still he does it um king cyrus of persia devastates their land and then the last little interesting thing that we're going to see if you go over to chapter 51 verse 5 and 6 um babylon's fall the fall that they that they experience whenever they fall it's going to actually bring restoration and return to israel this is very interesting language Babylon's death and destruction brings in or ushers in or signals the return. It signals the restoration of Israel. Now, we'll talk about that in a second, but I think it's, it's quite interesting. You can see that in verse, chapter 51, verse 5. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken. Because 70 years in exile in this pagan land, they're eventually thinking, God's just forgotten us. He's never going to bring us back to our homeland. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts. But the land of the Chaldeans, that just means Babylonians, is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. The repayment he is rendering her. So this is, this is not random punishment brought to the Babylonians for no good reason. The Babylonians are absolutely guilty of what they have done against God's people. And God, justly so, is bringing this punishment against them. And as he justly brings this punishment against them for their sin and their treatment of the people of Israel, it actually brings in the restoration and return of Israel. So there's a promise given to Israel here of being redeemed. Um, One commentator, Chris Wright, he says, The fall of Babylon not only involves God bringing down on them the retributive consequences of their own sin. So that's what it brings to Babylon. But for the Israelites, it says, but it also signals the restoration of God's people to their land. A fresh start in their covenantal relationship and the first step towards establishing the new covenant, which is, is in Jeremiah 31 and following, based on God's forgiveness. So this is what Chris Wright says. He says this event in chapters 50 and 51, the devastation of Babylon is so dramatically portrayed in chapters 50 and 51. And it's absolutely necessary because it serves as the necessary prelude to the historical future for Judah that was promised to them in chapter 30 and 31. In other words, here's what it means. Chapter 30 and 31 is the promise of Jesus coming. Salvation through Jesus, forgiveness of sin. And the blessings that Israel is going to receive and us... Receiving of that salvation through Jesus Christ. We will receive that. And it begins with the crushing of Babylon. When they're crushed. Exiles come in. And then we're going to keep marching forward in this new covenant that God has given. In other words. Chapters 50 and 51. Take their place rightly with the gospel. This is Chris Wright. This is, this is so awesome. For it is assuredly good news that evil will not triumph forever. You ever hear when somebody says, to tell somebody the gospel, the good news, you've got to tell them the bad news first. The bad news being, you're a sinner, and generally they don't like that. We can all agree after a 30-second conversation, have you ever lied? Okay, yes, then you're a sinner. We, but we have to tell them the good news, in order, I mean the bad news, in order for them to know the good news. And that's the same idea of the gospel here. The good news, the bad news is, um, the good news is that evil won't triumph, but the bad news is that there is evil. There is evil. And so there has to be this bad news in order to get to it. And that's why he says, Jeremiah 50 and 51, take their place with the gospel. For it is assuredly good news that evil will not triumph forever. That tyrants will not have the last word. That satanic pride, greed, aggression, violence, and death will be ultimately destroyed. Now, that's characterizing the sins of Babylon against the people of Israel. But realize it's also characterizing every single one of us before we come to know Christ. The good news is that what's in us, tyranny satanic pride, greed, aggression, violence, death, all those things will also in us be ultimately destroyed and put away. And we who are in Christ will then be given new life. So this particular story, Babylon represents the sin in our life. It's destroyed and final restoration can happen. Our sins destroyed and final restoration can happen. So as we've seen, the good news is that evil will be destroyed. We also can see the other side of the good news, which is when evil is destroyed, what's the blessings of salvation then that God gives to Israel? And let's remember, as we're looking at chapter 50 especially, and we see these kind of blessings and images of the salvation that Israel is going to receive, thereby... Those are the same kinds of words and images and blessings that we receive who are in the church today. You'll see what I mean. Look at chapter 50, verse 4. Chapter 50, verse... Now remember, you got to remember. 70 years. 70 years. They're over here in exile. Wanting to go back to their city. Disliking this. God's telling them... You're here for a mission set down roots and they have, but no doubt still in their mind because they're the people of God and for thousands of years have always been told that that's their land, that's their promised land. They're over here. Imagine the the news as you are a child perhaps or you're a mother or you are whatever, a person and someone comes to you and says, 70 years has gone by and here's the good news. The Lord's going to bring us back. The Lord's going to bring us. Imagine the emotions that fill you. Look at verse 4. In those days and in that time declares the Lord. The people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together. And here's the emotions. The proper emotions that fill them. Weeping as they come. They shall seek the Lord. Weeping as they come. They shall seek the Lord. This weeping is representative of the idea of Repentance. So the first blessing of salvation or the first image of salvation given to Israel and being restored back from the exile. And thereby the first blessing for us or the first image for us in salvation is repentance. Repentance. Weeping as they come. Which is representative of the idea of repentance. We don't often think as repentance as being a blessing. We think, okay, repentance is the hard part that I have to go through. The real stink pot part. And after I go through that, then I get to get to the blessings of the other things. But I would submit that the repentance part is part of the blessing. The act of you turning from sin. Forsaking sin. Being forgiven of your sin. And walking forward in new life. The act of repentance itself is also a blessing or an image of salvation. Imagine... The blessings that of repentance that come to us. They're numerous. Things like that final confession of sin. You know, whenever I was in, in grade school and I made a bad grade, say, actually throughout my entire life. But anyway, remember whenever you're in elementary school and you haven't told your parents, this could just be me, you haven't told your parents that you've been failing the test the whole semester and then you know you're going to get a bad report card and in elementary school, which is always terrible, you have to bring your report card back the next day signed Remember that? Like, they got, they got to sign it. And signing it means they've looked at it. And when they look at it, they're going to know. And they're going to I mean, get the speech. You know, the long speech of, what's wrong with you? How come you're not? You know, whatever. That's, maybe it's just me. Anyway, uh, so I remember the weight of walking home that day with the report card with the D on it or whatever. And having to show it to them. And I dreaded the entire thing. But all I was thinking to myself is literally, tomorrow it'll all be over. They'll know. I'll have gotten the speech. I would have moved on. And I've confessed it. Yeah, I did bad. But then tomorrow, everything's back fine again. I'm their kid. They love me, et cetera, et cetera. And I just remember finally, like, I did bad. Okay, the speech. But that that moment of confession, when it finally, like, whew, exhale off my shoulders, like, That's a blessing. That's exactly the same thing. When we're talking about repentance, the blessing of the final confession of sin. It's off my shoulders now. I don't have to carry around that weight anymore. Thank goodness it's over. Confession brings with it, repentance brings with it, this final confession of sin, which is a blessing. I've confessed it. You know it now. (sighs) Thank goodness you know it. There's other blessings of repentance that are numerous. The forgiveness that's extended to us. When we finally repent and we're forgiven and we know that we're back in proper relationship, that's also a blessing. Or no longer being controlled by the sin. Repentance means turning away. It's not just like, oh, I'm sorry. Instead, it's I confess this sin, I'm sorry. And now I turn and I walk away from that sin and back towards Christ. So the fact that this sin right here controls me. But repentance means it doesn't anymore. That's an amazing blessing to know that I was, I was controlled by the sin, but the act of repentance, the blessing of repentance means it doesn't control me anymore. And now I get to walk forward in new life. That's another amazing blessing of repentance, new life given to me. So there's amazing blessings given to us in the act of repentance. So I would say repentance is a blessing of salvation. Look what it says here. Weeping as they come. And they shall seek the Lord their God. Together they're all coming. Weeping as they come. And they shall seek the Lord their God. What we need to realize. was happening for the people. And what happens for us. In the idea of repentance. This wasn't just the people of God. Returning to their city. To get a new address. Or get their address back. This isn't just. I want my home back. This isn't a people returning to their address. This is a people returning to their God. They're weeping. Because they're getting to come back to their God. Not their home, address. And that's what repentance stands for for us. We're getting to come back to our God. We're coming back to our God. That's why repentance is a blessing. And that's why true repentance is always tinged with sorrow. Because you're so sad that you walked away. You're sad that you sinned against a holy God. And you're also joyously crying that you are coming back. That's why when we hear in Psalm 51 these... Amazing, emotion-filled words of repentance. So in Psalm 51, David's caught in sin. And here's how he repents. Hear the emotion of his words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. We'll talk about that later. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. We'll talk about our deep desire to be washed. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. And this is amazing language. David sinned, against Bath, uh, David sinned against Uriah with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. So I would say certainly David sinned against Uriah and even against Bathsheba. And in verse 4 he says, against you and you only have I sinned. I bet Uriah's dad thinks differently. Right? What are you saying, David? He's saying our sin primarily is always a sin against God before it is anybody else. All of our sin is against God. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. But the most offended by our sin is not another person, it's the Lord. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You're right to call me a sinner, God. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me the wisdom in the secret heart. Hear Hear the words of sorrow here. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I mean, these are just words filled with emotion. And so as we see here, weeping as they come. Philip Reichen says, turning back to God means turning away from sin. Turning away from sin means being sorry for sin. A sinner who grasps the the vast holiness of God and then receives mercy from God must weep over his sins. It is a grievous thing, a grievous thing, a sad thing to sin against a holy and merciful God. So tearful repentance is one of the greatest blessings of salvation. The gift that God gives us of repentance. So like the exiles, as they turned away from their sin... And came back, to the God, came back to their God. Because of the sheer mercy of God. Let us do the same thing. Because of the sheer mercy of God. That he invites us in. Through Christ. Turn away from our sin. And be reconciled. Or come back to God. And repent. The next theme I want you to see. Is that idea of covenant. So the first one was repentance. Covenants in verse 5. Look. They shall ask the way to Zion. With faces turned towards it. Saying. Come. Let us join ourselves to the Lord, Yahweh, in an everlasting covet, covenant that will not be forgotten. What's this everlasting covenant that you're talking about, Jeremiah? What are you talking about? Are you talking about Exodus nineteen five and 6, where God says, be my people? Are you talking about the new covenant that you just talked about a few chapters back in chapter 31? Well, clearly he's talking about this new covenant in chapter 31, so... If you want to you can flip I'll be in chapter 31 verse 31. It's really easy to remember the new covenant in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31:31 31, 31 and following. But you can't confuse it with Deuteronomy nine, 29, 29, which is the secret things of God. Anyway, Jeremiah 31:31. 31, 31. It says this in Jeremiah 31:31. 31, 31. You can see the idea of the broken covenant and then you can see the new covenant. Here's the broken covenant. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. 500 years before Jesus is born God sends Jeremiah and says a new covenant is coming I'm going to tell you right now about it in 500 years Jesus is going to come not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt that's Exodus 19:5 and 6 why not that one? because that's my covenant that they broke even though I was there a husband they broke that and God could have evenly just said you broke it, we're done That's the covenant broken. But there's like this hint of promise. It's not the end or not even hint. Like this screaming of promise. New covenant. New covenant. You broke the old one. I'm even going to make a new one for you. And there's going to be differences. Key, unique, amazing differences. Because you couldn't keep the old one. I'm going to create a new one. And I'm going to keep the new one. And make it so that you can't break the new one. Here's how. You can see it in verse 33 and following, the things about this new covenant. It's not entirely different, but it is new. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. And Gentiles, we're part of that now because of Acts. Anyway, um, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So that first little part of the covenant is now you couldn't obey me, but now I'm going to internalize obedience. I'm going to put the Holy Spirit inside of you. You could never obey my laws, but now the Holy Spirit's going to be inside of you and you can keep my laws. The new covenant's different. You couldn't keep the old. I'm making it so you can keep the new. So, an internalized ability now to obey God when he says, I will write my law in their hearts. The next part, I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the old covenant, you could never reciprocate the relationship with me, but now I will be their God and you will be my people. Now the relationship will always be reciprocal. I will always be your God and you won't fall away. You will always be my people. Because you're able to keep the covenant now. Because of of God in you. So the first one's ability to obey. The second one is this um, restoring of relationship. The next one is in 34. And no longer shall each one say to his neighbor and say to his brother. Know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest declares the Lord. This now brings to us an ability to know. Before you could not know the, know the Lord the way that you will be in the new covenant. Now you will know the Lord. You will actually know Him. You will know Him. This isn't just <clears throat> you read an ad and you understand some things about Him. J.I. Packer wrote a whole book about the difference between knowing God and knowing about God. You won't know about God. You will know God. And so that's the third part of the covenant is that you'll have a knowledge of Him. And lastly you can see is this total forgiveness. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In the old covenant there was a sacrificial system that had to keep happening. And sin had to keep being atoned for and the Lord was remembering it, if you will, because it was never fully atoned for. But now in the new covenant Jesus, the, the ultimate sacrifice, no one could ever be this, is put forward. And because he is not just God, man, but also God, he is the ultimate sacrifice. He is able to be the perfect sacrifice, no longer just animals year after year. He's the Lamb of God. And what happens? It results in total forgiveness of sin and total, now, remembrance of sin no more. So the fourth part of that covenant is, is we have obedience Reciprocal relationship, knowledge of God, and the most beautiful part, perhaps, total forgiveness of sin. We'll talk about that in a second, but think about that. Every sin that every Christian has ever committed for all time, ever, from eternity past to eternity future, forgiven. Because of one man's work and death on the cross. That's how unbelievably powerful his death was. So this idea of covenant is being described to us. So... Take a step back and read verses 4 and 5 now. Not just in the immediate context of Israel being brought out of exile, but all of us in those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come. They shall seek the Lord their God. That's what, that's what happened to everybody that comes to Christ. And they shall ask, <clears throat> and they shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned towards saying, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. This is language describing the church as well and how they are being brought into the covenant. So the two things that we see thus far, the first one is the blessing of repentance. The second one is the image of the blessing of covenant. The next one you can see is right there in verse 6, the idea or image of God being our good shepherd. Here he's going to talk about bad shepherds. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away onto the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone They have forgotten their fold. This particular verse is pointing us to the fact that there have been plenty of bad shepherds to God's people. Jeremiah is absolutely aware of that. But here, God is promising that he is going to be the good shepherd. Now, none of you probably have hung around a shepherd before. (laughs) Um, Me neither. So I don't hang around sheep or shepherds very often. So sometimes when we use 2,500 year old illustrations, it doesn't translate for us right away. So let the Bible explain it for us. Because it's not always the easiest. Um, but here's, here's what's going on. Philip Riken says. These particular verses. Um, look forward to everything the Bible says about Jesus. Who is the good shepherd. So here's what it means. Luke chapter 15 verse 4. There's a story of a shepherd that has 99 sheep. But one left. And loving that one so much. He securely keeps them here. And he goes off for that one. And he goes off and finds them. And brings them back. And it's. In that particular text, chapter 15, you also have the parable of lost coin and the parable of the lost son. And what it means is this. Those that are his children, he is willing to sacrifice anything to go get them. So in Luke 15, Jesus is the good shepherd that leaves and sacrifices all to come get you and bring you into the family. That's what it means for him to be our good shepherd. Matthew nine thirty six. Jesus is the good shepherd. Here, he looks out at people and it says he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That just means we were lost, hopelessly lost. Not, oh, we've got Jack that's going to get us back. We're lost. Like, we're hopelessly, that was a reference to lost the show, by the way. We've, we, we are hopelessly lost unless God comes and gets us. And so in Matthew 9 36, he says he looks out on them who are with compassion, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. That's what the good shepherd does. He has unbelievable compassion for his people. Or, first Peter five six, Jesus is described as the chief shepherd. Why is he called the chief shepherd? Because he's eventually going to come restore everything. This broken world is one day going to be restored by Jesus. So referencing him as the chief shepherd is showing us that he's the good chief shepherd that comes and takes this broken creation and sets it back the way it's supposed to be back in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. That's the good shepherd. That's the the idea of this cosmic scale salvation that's happening. Not just for us individually, but for all creation. also in John chapter 10, which you may know, in John chapter 10 it says that Jesus is the good shepherd that literally lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good, he lays down his life for us. We deserve the death and he took it for us. No one, no one is like Jesus who loves us so deeply like he does, searches us, searches so diligently for us like he does, provides for us so generously like he does, and paid such a great price like he did for us. So this third blessing of Jesus being, or image of Jesus being the good shepherd shows us just how much he loves us. What extent he went to to find us. And how he provides for us so generously for us to be saved with his own life. Because he paid such the great price that we would actually receive salvation by his death. Which, by the way, should have been ours. And he took it for us. And then last, or not lastly, fourthly, we see the idea of atonement. You can see this in verse 19. Now remember... Years and years and years and years of willful sin in Israel. Willful, willful sin in Israel for them not obeying the covenant for, to let him be their God. Continual, continual willful sin. So if someone were to come to Israel and Judah and say, we think you're sinful. Let's look around at your past and see. They would have all kinds of evidence. Notice what's described of them. This is Crazy language that's going to be described of Israel and Judah, verse nineteen. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan. And this word, his desire, this is actually, and his soul's desire shall be satisfied. So it's saying, Israel, your soul's desire, your deepest desire that you have in your soul, is going to be satisfied. That can only happen in, in God. Only God can satisfy the soul. No one else can satisfy your soul besides God. And he says, I will restore Israel to the pasture and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan. And his soul's desire will finally be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and Gilead. This is what it means. Here's why. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel. People are going to look for Israel's sin and there shall be none. People are going to look for all kinds of evidence to show that you're sinners. They're going to come up short. There shall be none. And the same thing about Judah. And sin in Judah, and none shall be fine. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. This is full atonement. That's the fourth blessing or image of salvation that we see here and for us. Atonement. Atonement. This word is absolutely amazing. It means, we have to be careful and understand this, not just... Forgiveness of your sin, but also the guilt that we experience afterwards. We all are familiar with this. You've been you've been a sinner. You've been forgiven, but you still have this kind of ongoing guilt about the fact that you were sinner before, now that you're in Christ. This is full atonement. All of your sin forgiven and the guilt that you feel, all of that has now been erased. Atonement means not just your sin being forgiven... But the guilt of that sin has also been erased. You don't have to be guilty anymore. You don't have to feel guilty. Jesus took that as well. If someone were to come and search for it. It's saying it's gone. Because Jesus atoned for it. We are all built. Every single one of us. Because we're sinners. We're all built and wired to want to be clean. As David said, purge me with hyssop. Make me clean. I don't want this. Every one of you. Christian or non-Christian, every person knows that if they've sinned or even been sinned against, what do they want more than anything? It's cleansing. It's naturally supposed to be there. Here's an example. Um, many years ago, I used to live in Charleston. And whenever I was in Charleston, um, it, flo- it floods off in Charleston when it rains. It's, it's nasty. Um, but if you have ever been in downtown Charleston when it rains, there's... There's water that will arise, you know, like this high. And so one day, I was going down to Charleston. Um, I lived in North Charleston. We were driving downtown. Me and my buddy Ryan were going down to Kaminsky's. It was like 9.30 at night, and it had just flooded. Christy was going with me. Um, and so, <clears throat> since it, if you know Christy, she's scared of lightning. And so as we were, uh, as we were driving downtown, the lightning was, was going kind of around us. So she was in the back seat. I don't know what she was doing. She was probably hiding, hidden over with the sweatshirt. We didn't have kids. That's why we're out at 930. When you don't have kids, you can do what you want. It's nice. Um, One day, you know, in like 40 years, we'll get to do that again. Uh, But anyway, we're driving downtown. And so we see the storm and we know it's been flooding. Me and Ryan are driving. Christy's no blanket in the back seat or or whatever. Um, And so when we finally get there, we pull up right in front of Comiscus like, wow, front parking spot in Charleston. That never happens. It's usually like in the... uh, the parking garage 17 miles from here. We pull right in front of Kaminsky's. I open up the door and I realize why I got front parking space. I set my foot out and I'm boom, right in water. Thankfully I have on flip-flops. Um, but I think, you know what? This is a chance for me to uh, show that I am the hero. Husband of the year. Possibly husband of the decade. I'm going to close the door. Go over here to the back seat. Because remember she's in the back, scared of lightning. She hops on my back and I walk up the stairs to Kaminsky's. Turn around and back up her to the stairs and you know, show just how uh, the hero I am. So as I'm backing her up to the stairs and getting to there, I see the massive river that I have traversed. You know, just wanting to kind of bask in the glory that I was of being the hero of taking her through that massive, you know, river because it was flooding. And so, but here's the thing. uh, As I backed up and showed her, I got my first glimpse, if you will, of what I traversed through. And I noticed that the water wasn't what I thought, like, regular water would be. In Charleston, when it floods... The sewers flood. And so the water that I walked in that Christy didn't have to go through because I am the hero. I got to walk through poop water. Um, It's disgusting. It is nasty. Um, Which just highlights the hero status that I achieved that night. But anyway, so what happened as I realized and Ryan realized that we literally walked through poop, disgusting water. Um, the hero status kind of stopped right there. I was like, okay, Christy, see ya. And so I left and we ran in and we went in and there was a sink, um, in, in that particular bathroom that was about this big and it was about that deep. And you know, like in, maybe it's just me, but in public bathrooms, when you're trying to get water, you don't want your hand to touch the bottom of the sink because it gets your hand extra dirty. So like, or nasty. So we're, we're trying to wash our hands and Really, honestly, Ryan and I did our best to take a full-fledged shower in this little particular sink. Why? Because it's naturally ingrained in every single one of us to want to get funky, nasty, dirty filth off of us. This is the exact same way it is for all of us in regard to our sin. It's built into us. As soon as we see gross all we want to do is sprint to some kind of fount for cleansing. And that's what we did. Our natural inclination for every single one of us is to grab the sinful filth and get it off. And you can try your best to get it off in any sort of sources. Good works. Let me do what it... But the only way that full cleansing can happen, the only way that it can happen, is through Christ. Jesus is the only fount that actually supplies the... The washing that we want. The deep down soul cleansing made white as snow washing. It doesn't come in any other form. No other person can do it. There's no other way that you can find it except for in Jesus. And it's because he was the one that went to the cross for us. We broke his laws, but the heart of God is beyond our comprehension and holiness and forgiveness that he provides for us. Cleansing, absolute full atonement. Think about this. Think about what Israel hears. Iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none. And sin in Judah, none shall be found because the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 says, For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Your sins. That you hate, that you deeply desire to be cleansed away. No more. This is amazing news. Full, full atonement. Reminds me of the hymn by a man named Philip Bliss Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. What a savior who offers this full atonement. That's the fourth image or blessing that we receive from our salvation. Full atonement. The cleansing that every one of you is wired for, deeply desiring, is only offered to you in Christ. The last one is in verse 33. If you look at this, this is verse 33. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the people of Israel are oppressed and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive had held them fast because, here it is, same language as Pharaoh, Pharaoh, they refused to let them go. That's intentional. Jeremiah is doing that on purpose. This is the second exodus, if you will, being they off in exile and being brought to the promised land. And how is this going to happen? This is how it's going to happen. Their redeemer, or this is the idea of kinsman redeemer, their redeemer is strong. Babylon's not strong. strong. They're strong enough to keep Israel down, but they're not strong enough to keep God down. God is strong. He can absolutely destroy Babylon and restore them. God's the redeemer because he's strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give them rest on earth. But unrest now to the inhabitants of Babylon. How? This, look at this description of our strong redeemer. The sword against the Chaldeans. Remember that's just Babylonians. Declares the Lord and against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against their officials and their wise women, a sword against the diviners that they may become fools, a sword against her warriors that they may be destroyed, a sword against her horses and against her chariots, and against all the foreign troops, a sword against all the treasure that they may be plundered, a drought against her waters. So you can see, this is the Lord acting for them by strength, coming and being their redeemer. The Old Testament fall of Babylon is a huge story that's, Very simple, that highlights the redemption of the Old Testament people, and it matches the, the exodus that the people had when they were sent out of slavery. In Psalm 137, there's a description of how the people felt as they're exiled, as they're exiled to Babylon for this long period of time. Psalm 137 is a description of how they felt. It says this, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung our lyres. For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us the songs of Zion. And they say, How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. I don't want to forget Jerusalem, but I don't want to be here. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If you do not remember you, if if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So we can see that the Pain that they had as they were exiled to babylon and how desperately they wanted to go back and now what's happening is the redeemer is coming this this redeemer is the, the idea of the kinsman redeemer like in ruth where in the old testament the redeemer or the kinsman redeemer had the op, the opportunity but also the responsibility to come and rescue the members of his family out of slavery and avenge the enemies that that captured them so here we see this is quite amazing In Jeremiah 50, verse 34, you have a huge reversal for the people of God. Where they're finally being redeemed and brought back to the people of God. Brought back to the the land of God. The book started in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9, talking about how God's going to continually contend with them. He's going to continually contend with them because of their sin. But by the end, the Lord in his great mercy is no longer contending, but instead acting as their redeemer and bringing them back Out of slavery. And just as every exile here of the people of God saw redemption as precious as they got to come out of Babylon and come back to their homeland. Every Christian also, those that have been redeemed by Jesus, should also see as absolutely precious the redemption that Christ Jesus brings us. Because we have been brought back to him and one day we'll be brought back to our home in heaven with him. Or heaven on earth here with him in the new in the new heavens and new earth. Philip Ryken says this. Jesus has redeemed his people when he paid for their sins on the cross. He released us from the bondage of our guilt. He brought us back from sin. Back from death. Back from the devil. Christ accomplished this with redemption with his own blood. Amazing. Amazing redemption. And these five different things that are being highlighted for us are for the church. Not just Israel. We stand in these great blessings and images of our salvation. The fact that repentance has been granted to us. The fact that we are now members of the new covenant. Which God helps us keep. By the spirit. We can't fall away from the new covenant. Those that are truly his. his. The good shepherd. That he comes and finds us. And pays great cost. At his own behalf to do it for us. That full atonement is given to us. Complete sin forgiven. All of it being washed. And then finally, redemption. Redemption that you have been bought back to him. These are glorious, glorious blessings and images of our salvation that we've received. And they give us great reason now to worship. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna stand and we're gonna give God the glory for what he's done for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time that we can worship we pray that as we consider these great blessings that you've given to us, the idea of repentance or that you're our good shepherd or the covenant that you've given to us or full atonement and redemption, God, that these things would amaze us and that because of that we wouldn't give you half-hearted worship but instead our whole hearts devoted to you right now as we sing and as we leave and live a life for your glory. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand and sing with us.